The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Hi everyone, um, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the School of English staff postgraduate seminar series. Um, so I hope that you're all enjoying um, a good Pancake Tuesday so far and that um, you know many more pancakes await you in the near future. Uh, so on behalf of myself and my co-conveners Maggie and Janice, um, I'm delighted to welcome you today to our second seminar of this series. Uh, so last week we had a fascinating, very engaging talk from Dr. Brendan O'Connell. Um, and today we're following it up with um, what I'm sure will be an equally fascinating session from two of our very own PhD candidates here in the School of English Trinity College Dublin. So today we are going to be hearing from Eric Swartz and Bowen Wang. Um, and first of all, um, Eric will speak and he's presenting a paper called From Foundation to Demolition, Andre Platonov, Adrian Duncan and the Engineering of a New World. Um, and as someone who, who very recently devoured love notes from a German building site, I'm really looking forward to hearing all about this, Eric. Um, and then following Eric, we'll hear from Bowen Wang. Um, who is going to present a paper entitled Sisterhood, Paragon Dichotomy and Gesamtkunstwerk, um, an archaeological study from Utpicture Poesis to Intermediality. So apologies for butchering the pronunciation there. Um, so it promises to be a really, really interesting session. Um, but as ever, just a small bit of housekeeping before we kick things off properly. So um, this term, as with last term, we're delighted to be hosted by Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. So thank you very much to them for their continued technical support. Um, if you tweet, uh, feel free to tweet along with us this afternoon and feel free to tag at TLORHub, at Seminars TCD 2020, at TCD English, and you can tweet Eric if you like, um, at Metrofink, I'm not sure Bowen's on Twitter. Um, so the each speaker is going to speak for about 20 minutes um, and there will be then a Q&A at the end as always. So please, Put your questions into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screens and we'll try and get through as many of them as we can at the end of the session. Um, obviously we are on Zoom so if there are technical issues please do bear with us um, and we'll endeavour to sort it out as quickly as we can but fingers crossed that won't be an issue uh, today. So without further ado um, I'd like to formally introduce our two speakers to you before handing over to them. Um, so Eric, who will be going first, is a PhD candidate in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin, as I said, um, and he has been a machinist and a mechanical draftsman, um, and his doctoral research explores the narrative, formal and philosophical role of built infrastructure in recent works of fiction. Um, and Bowen is a second year PhD here at Trinity College, where he is an early career researcher in Trinity Longroom Hub. His research interests include modernism and the avant-garde, intermediality between literature and art, experimental poetics and visual aesthetics. Um, his research is funded by the CSC TCD Joint Scholarship Programme, and he holds a master's degree in literature and modernity from the University of Edinburgh and a BA in English language and literature from Sun Yat-sen University, where he also did an exchange year at the University of Southern Denmark. So um, all of that being said, we really hope that you um, enjoy our presentations today. Um, and I'd like to hand over to Eric to get us started. Hi. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to be turning off my video while I share my screen here. Just warning you. So uh, this presentation will outline some affinities between the Foundation Pit by Andrei Platonov and Love Notes from a German Building Site by Adrian Duncan that will form, I hope, the basis of a more thorough study. Both Platonov and Duncan were engineers before they were novelists, and major characters in both novels are engineers assigned to a construction project with obvious political significance. One engineer working in the early, early Soviet Union digs the foundation for an ambitious public housing project. 
The other converts the shell of a, of a concrete block in the former German Democratic Republic into an electronic store. Broad parallels could be drawn between love notes and many dystopian novels, but the driving metaphors of both the foundation pit and love notes are rooted in the technical and procedural details of construction under different regimes and in different technological er eras. <clears throat> in fact, like the foundation pit, love notes can be read as an ironic entry in the Soviet production novel genre, which valorized the engineers and laborers working to rapidly industrialize the new state. This is just an overview of what I'm uh, going to be covering. I'll start with an overview of the two novels, uh, move into talking about what exactly a production novel is, um, talking specific, then talking specifically about why each, uh, each of the two novels I think is a production novel, and uh, some brief notes at the end about what the significance of a production novel appearing in, uh, in 2018 could be. Uh, so let's start with the foundation pit. Um, it was written in 1932, but uh, never published during Platinum's lifetime. Um, the perspective shifts between a number of different characters who were kind of stock character types in the production novel genre. The laborer, the engineer, uh, a veteran of World War I, um, a party functionary, and so on. Uh, the plot follows the construction of a huge residential building in rural Russia which is actually also typical of the production novel genre where uh, a big project would spring up almost out of nothing. Um, and this, this takes place 10 years after the revolution, right at the start of uh, Stalin's five-year plan. Now, interestingly, maybe for my thesis here is that Thomas Seyfried, uh, author of The Companion to, uh, to the Foundation Pit, argues that the title would be better translated as The Building Site as the relevant Russian word doesn't carry the negative connotations of pit, like, like hell. Um, on the other hand, two of the translators of the most recent edition, Robert Chandler and Olga Mearson, note that the word is cognate with kotyol or cauldron, and that the text of, at several points refers to the pit as an abyss. In any case, I'm glad it wasn't translated as the building site because that might've made this presentation pretty confusing. So, um, why do we care about the foundation pit? Why are we still talking about this? Um, the book got some press recently, thanks to the reprint by NYRB Classics. That's how I stumbled across it. I am not a scholar of Russian or even a dabbler. And unfortunately, I can't read most of what has been written about this wonderful book because it is in Russian. Uh, but to save time, I'm going to quote a paragraph that should illustrate why this book is being reprinted in English and give a sense of the scope of the building and lay a foundation, which I will refer to later when I'm talking about love notes. Prashevsky uh, is an engineer and the site supervisor. So early in the book, Prashevsky took his head away from the planks and thought. Far away, a nighttime factory construction site was shining with electricity, but Prashevsky knew that there was nothing there except dead building material and tired, unthinking people. It was he who had thought up a single all proletarian home in the place of the old town, where to this day people lived by fencing themselves off into households. In a year's time, the entire local class of the proletariat would leave the petty proprietorial town and take possession for life of this monumental new home. And after 10 or 20 years, another engineer would construct a tower in the middle of the world and the laborers of the entire terrestrial globe would be settled there for a happy eternity. With regard to both art and expediency, Brzezewski could already foresee what kind of composition of static mechanics would be required in the center of the world, but he could not foresense the psychic structure of the people who would settle the shared home amid this plain, and still less could he imagine the inhabitants of the future tower amid the universal earth. What kind of body would youth have then? What agitating force would set the heart beating and the mind thinking? So I'll come back to that. Uh, but moving on briefly uh, to just to, I just wanted to establish that it's a beautifully written book, 
But one thing I wish I had time to convey here is how funny it is, how deep the wordplay gets, and why many Russian scholars and scholars of Russian were and probably still are convinced that it is untranslatable. I don't have time. Uh, suffice to say that even Prashevsky's immediate project is unrealizable. The foundation pit continuously expands as the vision for the all-proletarian home grows ever more ambitious. So on to love notes from a German building site. This was written by Adrian Duncan, an Irish visual artist and writer and former structural engineer. And it was published in 2018 by our own Lilliput Press. Uh, the protagonist and narrator, Paul, strongly resembles Duncan in particulars. His move to Germany to work as an engineer on building sites, his girlfriend, where he went to college, his interest in certain kinds of visual art, and so on. Uh, the novel jumps between three short periods near the beginning, middle, and end of the construction project. So that's, uh, again, I'll be returning to that, but for right now, I'd like to discuss what the production novel actually is. Um, the production novel is a well-defined genre. Uh, another way to put it is that it's extremely formulaic. The characters and plot structure of a typical production novel are found repeated dozens of times by different writers in the USR, USSR of the 20s and 30s. Uh, for example, Time Forward by Valentin Kataev dramatized the construction of the smelter at the Magnitogorsk factory complex. Um, it, it includes uh, speeches by Stalin talking about uh, sort of talking up the five-year plan and the industrialization of Russia. And the hero, the main character, is the supervising engineer who takes uh, a dialectical approach between the um, spontaneous uh, kind of enthusiasm of the locals for building this factory and uh, and the more moderating long-term planning influence uh, of the central party. Um, according to the formula of the production novel, um, the spontaneous efforts of local workers fail to achieve the desired goal uh, and only succeed when they learn to submit to party guidance, even when it demands what their naive but purest political minds regard as shameful compromises. Uh, an example of a shameful compromise um, in Kataev would have been uh, establishing a bridge to cart lumber over uh, that was required for the building of the factory rather than just building with materials that they had on hand. The party instructs them to build the bridge and bring lumber over and everything is okay. Um, success and fulfillment uh, both personal for the people who can now work in the factory and cosmic for sort of the brotherhood of man uh, come about only when workers submit to the guidance of the party. Um, so I would like to focus on two aspects for time reasons of the production novel that I see echoed in Platonov and Duncan, the product, i.e. the building and the process, the engineering, excavation, demolition and construction. Um, and at the end, I will briefly note some other aspects that I found I don't have time to cover. Um, so the foundation pit, and uh, as Thomas Seafried argues this at length, and it would be good to go and read his section about the refraction of the production novel genre um, in the companion to the foundation pit, but I, I can summarize the case here. Um, it was a politically incorrect entry in the genre. Uh, it had elements of parody, um, an orthodox political position on say the status and treatment of kulaks might be written as a, as a kind of aporia. Um, as in other production novels, the, product is, the project is taken to represent something greater about the success of industrialization and the movement toward a socialist future. Unfortunately, the project is never completed. The foundation pit expands endlessly. It would not have been difficult for a contemporary reader to see the parallel between carving out a bigger and bigger hole for a utopia that never gets built and the extermination of the kulaks, which is also given a humorous treatment in the book. The characters are quite matter of fact, actually, about the whole plan to destroy the kulak class. Even an orphaned little girl who is adopted by the workers uh, uh, when she asks 
why are there flies when it's winter? Asked Nastaya. Because of the kulaks, my little daughter, answered Chiklum. Uh, Nastya suffocated her in her hand the fat kulak fly presented to her by the bear and then said, well, you kill them as a class then. Otherwise, uh, there will be flies in winter and not in summer and the birds will have nothing to eat. And this is kind of treated, the, the workers kind of encourage her in this and, uh, and, and agree with her. Um, and even this demonstrates some ideological growth on the part of the girl who earlier had demanded that a pair of presumed kulaks be executed on the spot, only to be reminded that there were too few and the kulaks must only be killed as a class, uh, parodying the way that stock language gets turned into violent slogans. Um, despite all of these elements, the, these sort of subversive parodic elements, uh, the foundation pit contains the overarching goal of finishing construction of the all proletarian home, um, the typical characters uh, found in the production novel, uh, and an attention to details of engineering. Um, you saw a little bit in the earlier passage, but uh, attention to the, the engineer thinks about static forces and soil composition. And as his plan for the, the all proletarian home gets more ambitious, he thinks about uh, how far down he'll have to dig. And as he digs farther down, whether the, the sandy loam underlying uh, the other layers will actually support the foundation, which requires further digging and uh, so on. Um, so, uh, what about Love Notes from a German Building Site? What makes this a production novel? Um, the, the vision of the project is limited. Uh, where Prushevsky aims for utopia, Paul aims for a deadline in order to transition to a similar project in another city. Um, nothing is actually produced because this is just a store. Um, the goods are luxuries, uh, game consoles and cell phones. Um, the, not even the building is produced, it already existed. The, it was a East German building that is getting renovated and the renovation process is more like a process of selective demolition knocking out holes in this in concrete walls. Um, where, uh, where a utopian vision is more articulated is in Paul's concept of structure and space. Because the jobs, limited ambition and moral vacuity kind of chafe at him. He reflects that his girlfriend's Evelyn's simultaneous foray into the world of art places her in an environment far more, quote, complex and unstable, exhausting, frustrating, and challenging than his. Sitting in a weekly meeting with other contractors, he wonders how he ended up there, always concluding fatalistically that he is, quote, this way inclined. But he ended up there partly out of love for Evelyn. When he was unemployed in Ireland and they lived apart, he sensed that a move to Germany where they could support themselves in the same apartment would save their faltering romance. Duncan charts the six months of Paul's contract in Berlin, avoiding the story's emotional core and instead focusing heavily on the minutiae of site work, uh, only intermittently returning to Evelyn. Um, Love Notes elaborates on the engineering process and the minutiae of it, um, calculation, engineering drawings, the, uh, uh, computer-aided design work, inspections and approval. Um, meanwhile, Paul seems adrift. He has no intuitive grasp of the reinforced concrete structure he is working on. He compares it negatively to timber and steel frame structures, which are fairly easy to calculate the forces and stresses on. On page uh, 147, for example, he writes, I can understand the intent of a steel truss holding up a bridge or a walkway or the roof of an airport building or a train station simply by the way it looks, by reading along its length, letting my eyes skip across its main horizontal and vertical elements, then its smaller crisscrossing struts and bracings that make small language-like marks in the spaces above me, dicing the air into planes and making frames that reasonably filter my vision. By contrast, Paul, quote, distrusts the hidden bind between the concrete and the steel reinforcement bars within. 
the connection between a particular kind of structure, one that is complicated but transparent, rigorously engineered but visually intelligible, and a kind of utopia, becomes clear when Paul recalls seeing the Antwerpen Central train station. The primary structure consisted of huge red finger-like girders arcing up at intervals from either side of the station, meeting only at their tips. The spirit of the structure lay within the belly of its curved girders. It was a stiffness of its own making. All that was being put back into the earth by these girders was that which had been taken from it, an enormous, near weightless volume of air, the spans of glass on the roof and the weight of the girder itself. The language of the station was not only one of ill-gotten colonial money, but of another kind of conviction, organized man and machine foresight and a dominion of an expanded and intertwined mathematical and material imagination. So uh, wrapping up here, let's talk about the production novel today. Um, how would the production now, what, what would we expect the, the production novel to look like if it were revived today in one? Uh, I'm arguing that it, it looks a lot like Love Notes from a German building site. So the context of the novel has changed. It would make no sense for the Soviet production novel to transplant intact to the context of consumer capitalism. A straightforward entry in the genre under capitalism, the sort of valorize the move oh, toward uh, um, globalizing production uh, and moving would valorize maybe the building of a factory in the third world or perhaps a skyscraper or a cargo vessel. Um, but as in 1932, the myopic vision and ultimate failure of the engineering project at the heart of Duncan's novel reflects skepticism about the character of the change the project represents. Um, and there's more to this. I could have covered more in this presentation, uh, given a bit more time. There was uh, both novels uh, examined the treatment of labor, for example, the 17-tier the wage system uh, existing in the Soviet Union at the time Platonov was writing, wage disparities between uh, the engineers and the laborers imported from Eastern Europe, which Paul is, is shocked at. Um, uh, you can make a comparison between the party functionaries who visit the building site uh, versus the sort of remote construction company bosses and how their, uh, how their interests seem weirdly aligned. Um, I could have could have also gone more into materials. I did I did start to cover this about uh, Paul's view of the difference between uh, steel and timber construction versus concrete, but also the substrates of soil, um, reinforced concrete in the human body. Um, Platinum and Duncan both make a big deal about how all of these materials uh, are opaque and inscrutable compared to other things that are transparent and airy and how uh, that is relevant to the, uh, to the uh, political project of each novel. So um, I think that's about, that's about it for me though. I, uh, I wanted to make this sort of narrow point that will form the basis for uh, a broader study. And I am happy to pass it off to Bowen Wang now. Thanks so much, Eric. That was really, really fascinating. And I can definitely see lots of different strands emerging there that that like absolutely will form the base of a really interesting project. Um, and I look forward to the Q&A afterwards. Um, but for now, um, as you said, we're going to hang over to Bowen, who will give the second presentation today. So um, welcome, Bowen. Thank you very much, Olas and Eric. I will share my screen now. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy to be here, though online, uh, to present my paper titled Sisterhood, Paragon, Dichotomy, 
and Gazam Kunstwerk, an archaeological study from wood pictorial poesis to intermediality. Intermediality and its closely related concern about word image relation, in fact, are not a product of modernity. As early as Roman antiquity, Horace, in his Ars Poetica, on the basis of the great poet Simonides' uh, influential formula that painting is mute poetry and poetry a speaking picture in Rhetorica and Herennium, also inscribed in Plutarch's Morolia, composes his famous idea of wood pictorial poesis, namely, as is painting, so is poetry. By introducing this analogy, the Horatian similar here has brought forth the fundamental premise uh, of the kinship between the verbal and the modes of art. It signifies a carol comparison and a general notion of parallels. Serving as two representational forces, poetry and painting have been considered since Aristotle's poetics at the arts of Mimesis, the ideal imitation of physical appearance and the exterior world. It therefore unites the poetic and the pictorial alike as instrumental tools of mimetic representation. They share similar elements of formal compositions, for example, on the function, uh, both to mimic objects by rhythm and language or the color or shape, on subject matter, to imitate humans in action and their moral nature, on standard, to be judged by the vividness and resemblance of reality, and on structure, to treat plot in tragedy and outline or design in picture as equally principal elements of their uh, own representation. Sir Philip Sidney, obviously influenced by Horace and Aristotle, also conceives the poesy as an art of mimesis, by representing counterfeiting or figuring force to speak metaphorically uh, the poetry, the poesy here, a speaking picture, with this end to teach and to delight. Over and above that, he even takes advantage of the metaphorical power of wood pictorial poesis to defend poetry against the philosophy and history. By giving the perfect picture as a painter, the poet is able to yield the power of the mind, an image of that whereof the philosopher, uh, the, the philosopher bestows but a wordish description, and historian the particular truth of the things without the general reason of things. The, the visible effect and the pictorial naturalism of painting equip the poem with painterly techniques to represent the scale, the depth, and the shape of human experience. Later on, John Dryden, in his preface, A Parallel of Poetry and Painting, further elucidates this essential parallelism between the poet and painter in respect of the characterization, action, properties, chief end, decorum, and manners of fiction, to represent the perfection and deficiency of figures as natural objects in both portrait and comedy or tragedy. Grounded on the mimetic guideline, this Horace doctrine does not just set a common theme for rhetoric or oratoric discussions, but more profoundly, it provides a meeting ground for an intermediate exploration of the poetry-painting relationship in a series of comparison and contrast. The aphorism of wood pictorial poesis became a bequest and embryo of the humanistic theory of arts, growing in the greatest popularity during the Italian Renaissance, when poetry and painting were at the first time referred to as sister arts, but not a harmonious twin. At that moment, Leonardo da Vinci initially declared the war named Paragon by lifting the painting from its status as a craftsmanship to an independent art form. In the treatise on pictorial art, da Vinci proclaims this sisterhood, uh, this sisterhood tradition as a Renaissance enterprise and elevate painting to the class of liberal arts, even tops painting at the highest standard of human knowledge countering Aristotle's primacy of tragedy and Michelangelo's that of the sculpture. By saying the painter is the lord of all types of people and of all things, Da Vinci explained the, uh, explained the reason, uh, quote here, uh, the eye which is called the window of the cell is the chief means whereby the understanding can most fully and abundantly appreciate the infinite works of nature. And the ear is the second, which acquires dignity by hearing the things the eye has seen. If you call painting dumb poetry, the, pen, uh, the painter may call poetry blind painting. Consider then which is more grievous defect, to be blind or dumb, unquote. So focusing on the prominent faculty of vision, he ranks the eye and seeing first, and then the ear and hearing, and thereby painting independent, uh, dependent on viral quality takes the priority over poetry 
on auditory. He spies the theory of aesthetics here, treats blindness as a more pathetic defect than dumbness, but rattles the foundational idea of wood pictorial poesis by claiming poetry a speaking picture, by painting a silent poetry. So this subversion breaks up the state of muteness in painting by empowering it with the paramount sense of sight. In the same vein, following John Locke's empiricist notion that sight is the most comprehensive of all our senses, conveying to our minds the ideas of light and color, which are uh, peculiar only to that sense, and also the far different ideas of space, figure, and motion. Joseph Addison seems to be the closest uh, to rephrase Locke's words into his own, linking aesthetic tradition to modern psychological science. Our society is the most perfect and most delightful of all our senses, which fills the minds with the largest variety of ideas and furnishes the imagination. For both of them, eye, sight, and the culture of connoisseurship are the most natural direct sources of human ideas, from which the complex abstraction is originated from an association of basic sensual perceptions. Based on these rules and the epistemological transformation from Cartesian uh, orientation toward the mind, painting and the plastic here are considered to be superior to the metrical or rhetorical compensations. For the former are assigned with the power of virality and the primary pleasure of the imagination, in Addison's words, while the latter, censored from Plato's Socrates, are full of figurative words and literary troops which can do nothing but ins insinuate wrong ideas, move the passions, and thereby mislead the judgment, as Locke says. The alleged power of visual perception, the priority of the sense of sight from Tom Hobbes and even to David Hume, asks the poetry to produce a scene of images and mental visions uh, that organically interrogate the experience of both the reader and the beholder. The paragonal hierarchy of us is never merely a hierarchy of different media or ways of classification, but rather a contest of senses and a struggle for dominance between the perceptible and the imaginative, body and mind, the natural and the artificial, as well as time and space. In the middle years of 18th century, Godhold Lessing's Leo Kuong on the limitation of poetry and painting argues against the Horatian pattern and for his dualism, assuming that succession in time is the province of the poet, coexisting space that of the artist in the manner of departmentalization. Poetry obeys the temporal rules of uh, sequentiality and arbitrariness, where the painting sticks to the spatial law of simultaneity and likeness. By his first principles, uh, quote, if it be true that painting employs wholly different signs or means of imitation from poetry, uh, the one using forms and color in shape, the other articulates sound in time. And if signs unquestionably stand in convenient relation with the thing signified, then signs arranged side by side can represent only objects existing side by side, or whose parts to exist well, consecutive signs can express only objects which succeed each other, or whose paths succeed each other in time. And Lessons Leo Kuong aims at a deviation of the parallel line from the new classical convention to redefine the relationship between the verbal and the visual by reinforcing each other its generic boundaries. Rather than call it sisterhood, he prefers to see poetry and painting as two just and friendly neighbors neither of whom indeed is allowed to take on similar liberties in the heart of the other domain. Lessing is not the first one to build up this border in between, but unapologetically the most important one to dualize the pictorial and poetic into mutually exclusive pola uh, polemic constructs. The Leo Kuang-nized, uh, uh, this sort of Leo Kuang-nization uh, does not manage to distinguish one from another only within the inside domain of semiotics or aesthetics, uh, the series of signs and senses, but develops into a broad binary system of historic, uh, historical hierarchies. In W.J.T. Mitchell's picture theory and iconology, this dichotomy between painting and poetry are followed by binaries like the space and time, the natural and arbitrary, the narrow and the infinite uh, imitation expression, body and mind, the external, internal, the silent, the eloquent, eye, ear, the femininity, and masculinity. By doing so, 
Lessin and his contemporary Edmund Burke, who renders the word sublime and image beautiful for the most lively and spirited verbal description, can raise a stronger emotion than the best picture. Uh, by doing so, rank the poetry about painting as a new aesthetic cornerstone in the century of enlightenment. Uh, with cognition about perception, imagination about memory, and fiction about verisimilitude. In this anti-pictorial stain and this uh, signification of word, poetry is seen as disconnected with the representational potency to form sensible images, but empowered to affect by a spiritual power of sympathy, imagination, and sublimity. The relationship of poetry and painting at this time become no more a purely formal or theoretical theme but a political, psychological, and ideological issue. Instead of a lacunized underpainting, artists have noticed the interrelatedness and productive interchange between different forms or media of art in the late Romantic and Modernist period. Neither sisterhood and paragon, nor lasting dichotomy, could not prove evident on any longer, since the borderline between verbal and visual representations was gradually dissolved by by these interartistic influences uh, active from the late 19th and early 20th century. Friedrich uh, Schiller, uh, walking in various roles as a uh, intermediate figure in this case, uh, a lyric poet, philosopher, historian, and playwright, contends against the purified existence of us within single generic category, which becomes the historical uh, obstacles to the fullest nature of one's aesthetic experience. Read from his uh, letters on the aesthetic education of men, his utopian blueprint of a unified system of various arts takes the place of traditional uh, separateness. The perfect style in each and every art should remove the specific limitation of the art in question without thereby destroying its specific qualities and through a wise use of in, uh, individual peculiarities is able to confer upon it a more general character. In the later intermediate studies on the Renaissance literature and art, Waterpater blurs Lessing's neat line of demarcation between word and image, stating that in reference to the school of Giorgione, uh, Giorgione, each art may be observed to pass into condition of some other art by what German critics term as Andersheben, or Richard Wagner's multimedia term Gesamtkunstwerk, a partial alienation from its own limitation through so which the arts are able not indeed to supply the place to each other, but reciprocally to lend each other new forces. Both Peter and Wagner here underline the concept, a total work of art, and a Stehaben or Gesamtkunstwerk to unify different modes of form into a universal, all-embracing artwork. The relational lines between poetry and painting cease to, uh, to be paralleled or diverging, but lend supports from each other as Voltaire puts it, all the art join hands. However, uh, this joining force that reunites them together does not rely upon on the common duty of representing the external reality, but instead on the romantic theory of expressiveness. In the mid 19th century, John Ruskin reformulates the idea of wood pictorial poesis by claiming that painting is probably to be opposed to speaking or writing, but not to poetry for both of them are masses of expression. Since then, the purpose of art and literature has undergone a crucial change in social cultural aspects, no longer to copy or imitate, but to make and convey. So to summarize, as seen in the uh, allegorical drawing of the same title, the sustained and productive conception of wood pictorial poesis represents not so much a formalist group of thoughts or practices on verbal and representation, but rather a talking point, pictorially engraved on the st uh, stone tablet here and surrounded by a crowd of artists discussing their, art, uh, their artworks uh, in the field of art history and literary criticism. It positions itself at the interdisciplinary confluence of not only literature and art, but also to a large extent, rhetoric and aesthetics, epistemology and philosophy, psychology and other related social sciences. As shown in this archaeological section, a sister tradition starts from a discussion about relation or relatedness between different types of media as pointing out the physical similarity in the family photograph. The division between us then arising in the Renaissance witnessed the development of paragon as a cultural phase when the enterprise of differentiation into categories or classes fosters the purification and distinction of different media. 
the transformation from structural parallel that stresses kinship and harmony to paragonal debate that emphasizes difference and exceptionality in the previous time, soon into the extreme delimitation of the temporal and spatial arts depends the formal or empirical concern into philosoph uh, philosophical and aesthetic fundamentals uh, to the implications of a chain of binary oppositions. To sidestep the dichotomous thinking directed by Lessing's uh, exceptionalism of each form, the multimedia notion of Gazan Kunstwerk and, uh, and its function as a force of unification turn, turn toward a union of arts based on their creative partnership and cross-fertilized affinity as a straighter engagement with Horace's dogma. The 20th century tendency toward inter-art or intermediate conditions <clears throat> sorry, is rather an interaction or reunification when the era of specializing and classification lost its huge influence of the previous time. In a Hegelian spirit of dialectics, Intermediality here could be understood as a synthesis, unifying the classical parallelism and its oppositional binarism. The positive concept of comparison as synthesis and its negation of contrast as antithesis. The sense of intermediality, again, does not lie in a simple combination of the pre-existing formulations, but work as a more flex flexible, dynamic, and dialectical process in between historically paralleled or separated domains. So as defined, <clears throat> intermediality is mainly responsible for three major roles. The first one is a collaborative force involving the interrelation between two or even more art forms. The second is a destructive one, frame-breaking in a cross-disciplinary cross-media field. And the last but foremost one, I think, shall be a creation of new ways of reading and seeing as a critical response to the previous chain of binaries. Therefore, Intermediality and its philosophy of in-betweenness as a dialectical and dialogical basis does not assume an actual juxtaposition of literary pictorialism or pictorial literalness, charting its partner with unspeakable or invisible deficiencies uh, or, or dissonance. It instead brings the mediating and communicating into specific attention, which encode a collaborative relationship between the poet and the painter in a few lines of page and on the strip of canvas with reciprocities, tensions, and iconoclastic power of modern and contemporary aesthetics. So here is the bibliography where you could find more useful information cited so far. And thanks for listening and welcome any comments and uh, questions later on. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Bowen, um, for that fascinating um, paper. I mean, you got through so much in a short space of time there. And that was really, really enlightening. Um, so I suppose um, I will kick off the uh, Q&A, if, if I may, um, with a question. I have a question for both Bowen and Eric. Um, and Eric, I, I suppose my question for Eric is a bit rambling. So I'll, I'll let you sit with it and then ask Bowen a question, if that's OK. But um, I'm just really struck, I suppose, by the significance um, of this idea of a proletarian home in contemporary Dublin. Um, I also study contemporary fiction myself, and it's difficult to, you know, disentangle yourself from, from contemporary society, I suppose, when you're doing that. And then this idea that Paul couldn't afford to live in Ireland with Evelyn, and that he was a builder who was out of work because, you know, the construction sector collapsed in, in Ireland so spectacularly. Um, and I do remember hearing Adrian Duncan talking at, at a Dublin Book Festival event about, you know, the fact that he's based partly in Berlin. And then that's partly because Dublin is such an expensive city for artists to live and work in. So I suppose this, this sort of garbled question is, um, I wonder if this everyday sort of lived reality of capitalist housing and capitalist rental markets sort of melts into your research and how you might uh, look at that through this idea of a production novel. Um, so I'll let you sit with that. Um, and then for Bowen, um, I, I have a question sort of, I, I'm fascinated by, by this idea of departmentalization that you're talking about and this idea that poetry is arbitrary and, and sort of painting is more about likeness. 
um, and, and spatial law. And I suppose um, I, I remember a paper that Amelia McConville, who I think is here, gave last year about sort of poetry whose meaning comes partly from how it looks on the page and partly how it is, you know, poetry can be a very visual medium as well. Um, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that at all. Do I go? You're you're muted. Yeah, perhaps Eric go first. Sorry, whoever wants to go first can can jump in. Okay, okay. So to to quickly answer your question about the um, uh, lived experience of capitalist housing and capitalist re uh, rental markets, does that work its way into my research? Um, yes, uh, at the very least implicitly, like you can compare the, uh, the utopian vision of um, Platnoff's engineer uh, Prashevsky, which is to build an all proletarian home uh, um, and uh, how that will solve the problem of the workers on site, for example, um, living rough, uh, sleeping together in a big barrack. This is all meant to replace all of the, uh, not just the separate homes in the area, which keep keep people separate, and uh, I think he calls proprietorial, um, but to to give everybody a place to live together communally. Um, whereas the the vision of um, the electronic store doesn't doesn't seem to fulfill any kind of pressing need. It doesn't seem to make uh, it doesn't make rents go lower. It doesn't it doesn't do anything that that uh, yeah, Amazon doesn't already do. And even so, I think I think I would take lower rent over over a new Xbox. Yeah. So. Uh, So that's at the implicit level. Um, at the explicit level, uh, this might tie into a question Maggie Masterson is asking. So I'll, I'll leave the rest of that answer to, uh, to that. Hey, thank you, Eric. Um, and I totally agree about lower rent versus Xboxes. Um, but Bone, I wonder, could I come back to you? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for a question. I remembered and uh, uh, Amelia's wonderful uh, pr presentation last time on the neurosciences and the visual poetry. And I think uh, that is the amazing point when looking at the modernist and postmodernist in the uh, and the contemporary context about the how the visual poetry uh, the uh, based on the revolution of language and a kind of transformation uh, tra transformation from the perception and uh, to the cognition. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the lesson uh, standing on the point about this kind of departmentalization of the uh, time-based uh, poetry and the uh, space-based uh, art. And the modernists uh, uh, from the early 20th century, more and more artists uh, began to pay attention to this relationship. And they think uh, they can learn and support each other new forces like uh, the modernist writers began to uh, make the spatial narrative of the novels like the Joyce uh, Post. And the uh, painters himself also think about the standard and criteria of making a good picture uh, is still based on the uh, ver uh, very similitude of the depiction or we shall uh, begin to think about something new. So that is the point I think the visual poetry as a kind of uh, confluence between the poetry and poetics take place uh, in the 20th century context. Um, the visual poetry and poetics, I think, based on a, the kind of uh, combination of per perception and the, uh, uh, the cognition, and where a, the artist want to create a kind of spatial arrangement by the topo uh, topography or kind of design techniques and, and, and to, 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 to be against the, the lessons dichotomy of the time and space and poetry and painting. And so that makes it different from the visual poetry, uh, different uh, between the visual poetry in the modern and contemporary context uh, from the previous one. And in, in, in the previous time, we still have some, this kind of graphic poetry, but it's not like the radical 
experimental lyric poetry we see nowadays, but it's kind of shape poetry. They just use the words and the poetry to like uh, George Herbert, um, the kind of uh, to 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 arrange the word like the shape, the poetic format, the shape they describe their theme. Uh, but it's still uh, based on the mimetic principles. It's not something about the cognition. It's still on the eye or the sight. Uh, so I think the visual poetry uh, nowadays has more uh, this kind of advancement, especially in neurosciences, where we can have more interesting points there. Yeah, that, that's great, Bowen. And I suppose if I could just um, stay with you for a second there, because Amelia um, herself has, has posted a question for you. Um, and she says, thank you to both of you for your brilliant presentations. But yes, yeah, she'd like to ask you, Bowen, um, whether you have thoughts on the extent to which the legacy of um, lacunization manifests itself today in contemporary um, intermedial artwork. So I suppose, does it manifest itself more in criticism or in the artworks themselves? Yeah, uh, thanks for this question. Uh, and I think actually both, uh, like as I mentioned uh, for the last response, uh, there are more and more artists, uh, not only visual artists, but the poets and novelists that they began to uh, reconsider this kind of localization or departmentalization of different arts. Uh, so they began to transfer one medium into another. Uh, so, so I think there are more and more experimental poetry and artworks uh, from the tw early 20th century, even to the to nowadays, uh, uh, had this kind of revolution. Uh, but also, I think the criticism, they also witnessed this kind of transformation uh, as WJT Mitchell calls uh, the early 20th century or the 20th century itself, uh, alongside the development of like uh, the photography, television, uh, the advertising, film, um, there is a kind of pictorial turn uh, from the uh, 20th century. Uh, so it makes the artist to think about the previous ideas on the relationship between the word image when we, uh, when we use the word as a kind of uh, instrumental tool to depict uh, the, 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 uh, the exterior world. But now we use the word uh, as the word itself, we put on the materiality of the word and the textuality of the picture. And we, uh, so uh, I think, uh, so uh, the modernist and postmodernist, uh, the artist and the theorist, they uh, put a lot of efforts on rethinking about this uh, localization of time and space. They want to blur the bordering boundaries from each other. And that is the very point. I think the intermediality will bring a lot of, uh, good ideas uh, theoretically or methodologically here help us to think more about this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bowen. Um, if I could come back to Eric um, now, if I may, um, I have a question. I have a couple of questions for you, Eric, but um, I have one here from Alex Jones who asked whether you have any thoughts on the relationship between the production novel and the eco-critical novel. And he asked, could it be said that nature writing shares critiques and aims with the writings of infrastructure? Yes, uh, it does. And I'm sorry, I can't recall the speaker, I believe it was last term who presented about water conservation and water infrastructure in Palestine. Um, but there is not just a link, but a clear overlap between writing about infrastructure, power generation, public transit, waste disposal, water, and our relationship with our environment. Infrastructure um, extends the environment into the spaces we inhabit, uh, wind turning into electricity, water coming out of our taps, um, and also extends ourselves uh, into natural spaces, um, cutting railroads through the wilderness, dumping waste. And I wish this was my own thought, but I think if that was Freud who said something like that. But, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, um, yeah, yeah and, and to then move on to um, a question from Julie Bates, um, who again, thank you both for your presentations. And she says, um, my brackets horribly long-winded question is for Eric, um, wasn't as long-winded as mine. Um, so are there Kulak laborers on the site in Platonov. I know you didn't have time today to go into the exploitation of workers in both books, but since it seems that both books present failed construction as a commentary on their contemporary societies, I wonder if you have any thoughts about whether the books explore any kind of symbolic relationship 
between the transient labouring class on the sites and the contemporary societies in which these symbolic buildings will be erected, from which they are presumably excluded. Um, so yeah, Eric, if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, so uh, to answer the first question, workers are accused of being kulaks on site, but it's not clear that there are any genuine kulaks among the people who are basically a, a kulak has been a sort of a, a catch-all insult and term for anybody who's not pulling their weight. Um, there are actual kulaks in the novel um, who, uh, but since this is kind of at the start, it takes place at the start of the process of the collectivization, they still kind of um, exist as a class. Uh, they they're, they're still exist peasant farmers who own their own land and hire, hire people. Um, and during the course of the novel, you see some of them get uh, literally shipped down river. Um, other than that, just people who uh, are, are kind of politically dubious are all labeled kulaks, but it's not clear that. Um, the second part of the question, uh, symbolic relationship between the transient laboring class on the sites and the contemporary societies in which these, okay, yeah. So the, the workers on site are actually kind of curiously orthodox on this question. They know uh, uh, both Vostchev, who, who is kind of the um, Platonov stand-in. He's the first character that appears in the novel and he's a laborer on site who is constantly derided for being lazy because he stops to think too much. But Vostchev and, uh, and other laborers on the site very, are very much aware that they are building the society of the future for the future man. And there is, uh, there's a little girl who, who appears in the novel and there's the sense that they're building it for her generation, this ideologically pure generation who has never had any experience of of capitalism or uh, or imperialist wars or anything. Um, so whether there's a symbolic relationship, um, yeah, if the building represents the future society that is never being built. Um, oh, oh, and oh, okay, yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going off the cuff here, but. The, uh, there is this sense throughout the book and, and language throughout the book that the workers are literally expending their lives, expending their strength and their heartbeats, pouring it into the dirt uh, so that they may bring about this future world without any hope that they themselves will experience it. That is supposed to be their afterlife, is the, is the future society. Yeah, thank you, Eric. And I know that that you said that you do um, investigate that link between, you know, materials and building materials and, and bodies, which I know also features in, in Love Notes from a German Building Site and more in your broader project. Um, I think we have time for one more quick question, um, which I might pose to Bowen, if that's OK. And this question is from Maggie, and it's sort of... Um, a broader question about your, your sort of research more generally. And she wonders, is there a compelling argument for studying um, this in a school of English rather than an art school? Um, and, and, you know, I suppose, because there could be an argument made for both. Yeah, thanks for this question, Maggie. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the, the main reason for me to stay in the Department of English English is because my focus is on the, uh, the, the figure of painter poise in modernist contact. Um, so, uh, have, we might have lost Bowen there. Um, he did warn us that his internet was a little bit patchy at the moment. Um, I think Bowen is frozen. Yeah. Um, it's a shame about that, but um, I'm sure we can hear hear from him at some other point about his his reasoning um, for that. But this does bring us to the end um, 
of our session today. So um, thanks so much, Eric and Bowen, if you can still hear me, um, for your fascinating presentations. Um, really, really enjoyable. Thanks everyone for your questions and for attending. Um, thanks again to the School of English and to the Long Room Hub. And um, just to flag that our next talk is going to be on Tuesday, the 2nd of March, so this day, two weeks. Um, and it will be given by Dr. Dara Downey, um, and she's going to be speaking about Shirley Jackson and the Commedia dell'arte. Um, and you can find uh, the registration details on Trinity Long Room Hub's um, website. So thanks very much to everyone again. Um, and hopefully see you this day. Uh, the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.